0: Few of the newer people are saying he doesn't even hasn't even done anything yet. Why, why, why are we cheering this old guy? Oh. oh, what a delight it is to be here with you today. I just, I, I wish I could explain it. I'm not even sure. I don't have words for it. So, but what a sweet and refreshing experience, joy and honor for me to open the Word of God with you. Um, and what uh, Pastor Dave said is really true. We've become friends. Um, you know, a lot of times when um, The older guy passes on the pulpit to a younger guy, the older guy kinda has to leave. Um, that's usually the experience. And so sometimes Dave and I talk to people and they say, Really? You're it's okay if he's around It's more than okay. This is our family. In fact, we thought you know, if we have to leave here, this will be like divorcing our family. And so we prayed and God answered and used Pastor Dave and our elders and pastors, and I'm just grateful. We're grateful. Uh, to each and every one of them. And, and we're grateful to you. I just want to say a word here to you who are part of the flock here. Um, for So many of you pray for us. I look around, I see so many friends, old friends, and it's so glad uh, that you're here. So grateful for God's grace in your life that he's been faithful to you. Hasn't he? Yes. And you're grateful to him, and that's one of the reasons why you're here uh, so many of you pray for us and some of you support us. All of you, if you give to missions, you support us, whether you know it or not. Um, and I want to tell you, I've been a little bit around the world lately. And I want to tell you that your dollars that are given to missions are used really effectively for the kingdom of heaven. I have seen them at work and seen some of the investments that we have around the world. And I want to tell you, it's, it is sweet to see and good. So, I, And I, wa- I want to... S- say that I'm just so grateful to you for continuing to love Carolyn and me in this time. We just, this is our home, and we want to go to glory, uh, being part of Cedar Mill Bible Church, and we're just, we're grateful. Uh, so grateful to each and every one of you. I'm nervous. <laughs> I don't like this public speaking thing. So. <laughs> when I looked up here, At this background for Kids Fest, it's the Himalayas. You notice that, don't you? In February, I was in Nepal. And I want to ask you again, I just want to ask you, will you pray for our brothers and sisters in Nepal? There are thousands of them who have lost so much. And I've been in contact with just a few of the ones that I got to know in February. And one pastor said when three of our church members were killed, Our church is down. All of our homes are destroyed. They just started rebuilding. Another earthquake came and they haven't found out, found out what's happened to many of them. Many of them are up on the, on the lowlands of these incredible mountains. If you go to Nepal and you fly away from Nepal, uh, into India and other places, you see these mountains for like an hour out the plane window. It's every Nepalese looks at these incredible mountains. And maybe this will remind you some a little bit to pray for Nepal. I was in Ethiopia also um, earlier this year with Rich Gardner. What a tremendous experience. The privilege that God has given to us in these days of our life is to go to places where the pastors and the leaders of the church have so little training. Some have none. I've met pastors who have, have absolutely no training. They're the pastor because they have a Bible and they can read. And they lead churches, some of them 50, 100, 200, 300 people. And they're so grateful that we come. Uh, we're going to return um, to Ethiopia, uh, Rich Gardner. Oh, and somebody else is going with us, you might be interested. know. John Hamilton is going to go with us. He's going to teach on evangelism. Um, we're really excited about that. Um, I'm planning in, in a few weeks to go to Niger. If you know where Niger is, right on the edge of the Sahil, the, the Sahara Desert. They're going to gather together 500 pastors. Almost every one of which have have suffered some significant persecution in their life for being followers of Christ in that part of the world. And we're going there to teach them. And I want to tell you, every time I go, I learn so much more than anything I could ever give. These are amazing people. Some of them are not trained, but they're brilliant followers of Jesus Christ. It is an immense privilege for me. And I talk about you when I go there. And I just want to tell you how grateful I am that you have given us this privilege. Uh, if you don't get our little newsletter, or our emails and stuff, we'd love to include you. Um, Carolyn has some prayer cards down here. I think there's some back in the little uh, de- deacon usher area right there. Um, and we'd love to add you to our uh, list so you can keep informed. All right, enough of that. Take your Bible, if you would. Turn to Luke chapter 9. We're continuing um, what we're calling the journey. Learning to live like Jesus. I love that. Learning to live like Jesus. That's the challenge, isn't it? By the way, that's a thing that God's trying to do for you, in you, to you, through you. You know that, don't you? It's only going to take your whole life long to learn how to live like Jesus. And this morning I want to talk to you about following Jesus according to Jesus. I want you to listen to some of the words of Jesus this morning and see his heart again. And our text begins with verse 51 of Luke chapter 9. We're continuing on our study of the gospel according to Luke. And we'll just dive right in. So if you have your Bible open or you can look up on the screen, the very first thing we see is the unwavering purpose of Jesus. The unwavering purpose of Jesus. Verse 51, the Bible says, At that time, or as the time approached for Him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. The Greek scholars say the word resolutely is he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's a word of determination. That's a word of saying Jesus now knows he's going to Jerusalem. He's determined to go there. And on the surface you might not understand what that's about. But Jesus knows what going to Jerusalem means for him this time. This is the time of the Passover and huge numbers of people are going to Jerusalem. And Jesus knows this time when he goes to Jerusalem he's going to be taken He's going to be beaten, scourged, and crucified, and on the third day rise again. And he knows he's about to suffer, and he is determined. My friends, this tells you something about the wonderful Master that you have. That your Jesus knew exactly what he was in for, and he determined to go there for us. He resolutely determined to suffer for you and for me. He knew exactly what it was going to be like. Our Jesus, our wonderful Savior, is is a willing, self-sacrificing servant, willing to give himself into immense agony for us. He sets his face to go to Jerusalem. What a wonderful Savior we worship. Then the very next thing that happens is rejection. In verse 52, He sent his messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was headed for Jerusalem. He's sending messengers on ahead really to try to find out whether the people will receive him and want to hear about who he is and what he is called to do. And the word about him has spread everywhere. And so now he wants to know if now Samaritans will receive him. And some Samaritans, of course, have. You know, he's spoken to a woman by the well in Samaria months before, and now he's going through Samaria for the last time on his way to Jerusalem. But now they reject him. They will not receive him. They will not offer hospitality to him, which, which sounds like a relatively minor thing to us, but in that part of the Middle East, that's an incredible insult for you to refuse hospitality to anyone, even an enemy. If he came to your door, you would receive him into your home. And you would feed him and wish him well on his way. They will not even receive Jesus nor the disciples. And this, of course, reveals to us the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. And you know about this already because you've studied the Word of God or you've heard teaching on this. The Jews hated the Samaritans and the Samaritans hated the Jews. The Jews looked at the Samaritans and said this is a mixed breed of people, people who have Jewish background but they've interbred with Gentiles and now they've set up their own temple on Mount Gerizim and they worship Jehovah and idols and they've rejected a portion of the Old Testament Scripture. The Jews looked at them and said they're pagans. The Samaritans on the other hand looked at the Jews and said what an incredibly prideful people that say we are the chosen people. Can you imagine saying... I'm chosen by God and you're not. This is how the Samaritans felt toward the Jews. And now they know that Jesus and all the Jewish disciples are moving from Galilee down right through the middle of Samaria on their way to Jerusalem. And they do not want to have anything to do with him. And so they tell the disciples, don't bring Jesus here. The next thing we see in verse 54 is the reaction to this rejection. Listen to the loving servants of Jesus in verse 54 when the disciples James and John saw this they asked Lord you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them don't you just love that you remember uh, Dave a few weeks of talking about the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus went up the mountain he took Peter and James and John along with him and you know it was Moses and Elijah appeared, talking to Jesus. You remember that? Elijah, the primary prophet, and Moses, the symbol of the law, the law and the prophets, talking to the master, and there's great symbolism in that, but, the, but James and John would have been thinking Elijah. Elijah in Second Kings chapter 1 calls down fire from heaven, and they're thinking, we are in the spirit of Elijah. <laughs> and here's an opportunity to wipe out a few of the enemies of the Jewish people. And they just probably loved the idea of God's judgment on this Samaritan village. And so, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire? We'll do it. And Jesus, verse 55, turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went on to another village. Why? Because their heart attitude is all wrong. And Jesus has been working for years with these guys, trying to teach them the heart of the Father for people, for enemies. For people like the Samaritans, Jesus knew about rejection. He endured rejection. He endured suffering. And it was not in the heart of the Master to kill those who refused Him. This is never in the heart of Jesus. He has immense compassion and patience. It's interesting to me that years later, John will write, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Later on, John gets it. In fact, if you keep reading in your Bible, if you just look at the next chapter, Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells a parable. It's the parable of the good Samaritan. Interesting. And if you read a little farther in your Bible, you you come to Acts chapter 8, where now we see after the resurrection and the beginning of the church, you know, Now we see Peter and John going to Samaria to help new Christians learn how to follow Jesus. There's a transformation in John's heart. But right now, all he wants to do is kill them. Then we come to this fascinating place in the Word of God, verse 57 to 62. And this is the part I call following Jesus according to Jesus. One of the big struggles of life as a Christian is to try to figure out what does it mean to follow Jesus today? We read in the Bible about how they tried to follow him then. And one of the challenges of life is to try to figure out how do you take these principles, these truths, and apply them to our lives today. And if you want to know what it means to follow Jesus, the best person to listen to, interestingly enough, is Jesus. So let's listen to Jesus. And I think you'll be a little surprised at some of the things he says. There are three men that are possible disciples of Jesus. And Jesus listens to each of them, and then he says something to each of them. The first one I would call a volunteer, because this man, in verse 57, it says, As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. I love that. I'll follow you wherever you go. I mean, to Jesus, you'd think, all right, all right, somebody finally gets it. I'll follow you wherever you go. It's a great thing for this man to say this. He's probably attracted to Jesus. Maybe he has some ulterior motives because he might have heard the whole thing about the kingdom and rewards in the kingdom and he wants to get on the ground floor. If Jesus is going to Jerusalem, they thought Jesus was going to go and set up his kingdom now. And so this man, maybe he wants to be in on the ground floor and he's probably thinking, I'm going to be doing really well. Because they're gonna, he's going to kick the Romans out and probably kill a bunch of them. You know, he set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. All the prophecies of the Old Testament about the Messiah are going to come true. And those of us who are his closest disciples are going to be, we're going to be in great shape. So Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Interesting how Jesus responds in verse 58. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Hmm. What does he mean by that? Why did he say that? I think he's trying to communicate to this man, look, you're willing, you apparently are willing, and maybe you have some ulterior motives. We don't know. Maybe he was totally sincere. All we know is that Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, I don't even have a bed. Think about that. Simple willingness is not enough. It never has been enough. You remember a few verses back, Pastor Dave preached from, or maybe it was Matt, I think it was Pastor Matt, Luke 9.23, where Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must, remember, deny himself and take up his own cross daily and follow after me. What a radical idea of being a Christian that is. Jesus seems to be trying to get this man to check his motives and and really trying to get him to count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. Years ago, I remember being woken up at 4.30 in the morning again with this loud whistle of a guy bending over my bed, blowing a whistle in my ear. And I woke up and discovered one more time to my horror that here I am in the Marine Corps Recruit Training Depot (laughs) in San Diego, California, and I thought to myself, I volunteered for this. (laughs) This That's the stupidest thing I have ever done. I had that train of thought going for weeks there. I did not count the cost of that volunteering my friends, I think Jesus is trying to get this man to count the cost of what it means to follow him. And I don't think the man knew. I don't know about you, about how you came first came to Christ or what, what, how the gospel was presented to you. But my experience is that we very rarely ever tell people what it's going to cost them to be a Christian. What we do tell them is you get to escape hell and you get to go to heaven. Hey, I'm in. right? It's fascinating that when you look at what Jesus said and when you read the Gospels, you discover that Jesus never, ever made it that simple. Ever. In fact, sometimes He seemed to have deliberately made it more difficult. And here's an illustration of that. Jesus wants to make sure that this man understands that following Him is not going to be the pathway to an easy, comfortable life. Can I tell you that my experience particularly in Asia and Africa in these days, and you've heard this from missionaries, and I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty, so don't think I'm trying to... Actually, pastors are good at making people feel guilty, but that's not my intent. But I want to tell you that when you talk about the cost of following Jesus in, in places like Ethiopia and Nepal and other places, they don't have any question at all, because they. so many of them, when they first became Christians, they lost everything. Some of them lost their wives and they lost their families and their children and everything they owned. They lost their jobs. They were kicked out. Many of them were persecuted. They saw their family members killed. My friends, they they just get this. When you, when you try to talk about this in America, though, I think one of our problems, the problem for me is I have for many years mixed together being American and being a Christian. I've mi- mixed them together so much that I have this idea in my mind that if you're a Christian, things are going to go really well for you. And I've been blessed immensely. You know, I'm I'm comfortable till I get on a plane. Um, in fact, I'm working on a message. I don't know if I ever have enough courage to preach. It's called "Addicted to Comfort," and I realize that I've been trained for. I've been trained for more than 60 years about I I deserve comfort. You know, if the coffee isn't the right temperature, I send it back. Right. I mean, I like my own bed. I have this easy chair, you know, comfort. I'm, I'm addicted to comfort. I just, I have this sense. Of, and I've been told for all my life that I deserve it. And this is like a missing message most places in the world. And Jesus is trying to make sure this guy understands that if you're going to come, I will follow you wherever you go. Do you know where I'm going He's going to go to suffering and death. By the way, if you have any of these good things, if you have an easy chair and a nice bed and a car and and you can drink water and you have food and everything, then thank God, right? I'm not trying to make you feel bad about that. Thank God that you have it. Just don't think that becoming a Christian is a guarantee that you're going to have that stuff. Not here. Not for very long. That's a promise of heaven, my friends. But right now, the promise of Jesus is Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. If you're going to follow me, this is likely to happen to you. This is such a weird message to us as American Christians. Can I tell you, I was in a church in Nepal, and in and, and and part of the worship, they were going through what we call the Lord's Prayer. And they were saying it, and they were repeating it, and sort of singing it. And it was really fascinating. Of course, I didn't understand Nepalese, so I had a guy sort of whispering in my ear. And he said, they're doing the Lord's Prayer. And they came to this phrase. You remember this one? Give us this day our daily bread. And they're passionately praying this. And he whispered to me, if the rains don't come, their family doesn't eat. So this is a very real prayer for them. And I realized at that moment, I had never, ever Prayed that prayer for myself ever. Have you ever, I mean, seriously said, "God, give me enough to eat today"? A few of you have experienced that, but it's pretty rare. Are you are you tracking with me? There there's some things about Jesus that we just presume, and Jesus is saying, "Look, count the cost, my friend. I'll follow you wherever you go. I'm going to the cross. Count. The, do you know what you're doing? Nobody ever told me." Some of the cost of following Jesus. I don't ever remember saying, anybody ever telling me, you're going to spend your whole life long in this battle between the Spirit and your own flesh. And it's going to be painful to learn to be like Jesus. You know, we talk about these things as if they're easy, but you're learning that it's not easy, right? And if Jesus is going to do a deeper work in your heart, you know that it's painful and difficult. And sometimes He wrestles you to the ground and you have great Inner heart pain to try to learn to be like him. Following Jesus means count the cost. A second guy in verse um, 59. I call this man a draftee because Jesus is now trying to draft him. He, Jesus says to him, follow me. And, and we learn from this what Jesus says to this man that followers of Jesus must have nothing else First. This man wants to follow Jesus. Perhaps he's one of the men that Jesus will send out in the very next verses. We'll look at next week where Jesus sends out 72 to announce his coming. And maybe Jesus wants this man to be part of this group he's going to send out. So he says to this man, follow me. It's a command. Follow me. And it's a command that everybody understood. A rabbi would make that kind of command. A Messiah would. Listen to what the man says. He replied, Lord, first let me go. And bury my father. He wanted to follow Jesus, but not right now. Now, lest you misunderstand this, sometimes we look at that and we think, his dad just died and he wants to go to the funeral. I mean, Jesus would of course want him to go there. But that's not what that means. Uh, What that is, is that's a Middle Eastern phrase that has to do with the dedication of a son to his father to stay with his father in the home until his father died. It's it's the whole idea of submission to the family patriarch. This man's father may have lived for weeks, months, years after this. And this man is saying, I have family obligations to my father. And even though you are commanding me to follow you now, let me stay at home until my father dies. And then I will be free of that obligation, which everybody in my family knows that I'm obligated to do that. And then I'll come and follow you you understand? Verse 60, Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Just about the time you think that you've got to figure out what Jesus is going to say, he says something like this. Let the dead bury their own dead. What? Sounds a little harsh, Jesus. Right? But you go and proclaim the kingdom. What does he mean by that? Let the dead bury their own dead. He's saying, look, there are other people who can do what you're talking about doing, taking care of your father. There are other people. But I have commanded you to come and follow me now. And the message here is something like count the cost again. The message here is you cannot let human expectations and human customs and even the, the, the desire that you have to honor your own father come between the command of Jesus in your life. You can't place that first. You You must. Follow the command of Jesus. Will this man follow Jesus at his command? Put him above the need of his father and his culture? And I want to say to you, the message of the Bible is clearly that anyone who is called by Jesus must make that calling primary. And anybody who understands the values of the kingdom of heaven must make those values primary. And that's the struggle of our life, particularly it's our struggle of our life in America. Well, everywhere everywhere in the world. I've learned so much in these past months. I feel like a novice and a child in so many ways. One of the things I've learned, I've been surprised again and again at, is when I get on a plane and I go to Africa or I go to India. And we teach, we do some training and we try to. Try to stick as close to the Word of God as we can because it's a radically different culture and if you stray very far from the Word of God, you just might come up with some kind of weird thing. You know? And so you just stick as close to the Word of God as you can. You just teach them the Bible. Fascinating. Um, and, and they hear it and they hunger for that because they have so little teaching. And what happens again and again is that they will hear something from the Word of God and they'll be persuaded that this is what God wants to do. And you know, you know what they do then? They go and do it. They do it now. I can't tell you how many times pastors have stood in a line with me, someone with tears in their eyes, and they say, We heard what God wanted to say. I heard what God wanted to say to to me through what you just said. And I want to tell you my family is going to be different. I'm going to love my... I'm going to stop beating my wife. I'm going to love my children I'm going to teach the Bible in my church, not just the opinions of men. And I'm going to start tomorrow, today. And I think, whoa. And it's a surprise to me. Immediate obedience to what God is saying. You might be thinking, why is this a surprise to you, Pastor? I mean, immediate, obe- immediate obedience, isn't that great? You know what I'm used to? Not so immediate obedience. I summarize it with the words pondering and postponing. (laughs) A few weeks ago, Pastor Dave was talking about giving, financial giving. I sat right over there with Carolyn, and I heard him. And not only did I hear him, I think I heard something like another voice. Dave talked about giving and how some of you have reached a place where you're mature enough to like tithe or, you know, and you give a little extra. And what that's done is that's brought your giving up to this thing and it's a ceiling for you and you will not go beyond it because you think you give enough now. In fact, you're a little prideful about it. He was really meddling. <laughs> and I heard that message. In fact, I preached that message. And then this little voice says to me, You do that, Carl. You're pretty smug. And I began thinking, but I'm a missionary, you know, we're supported, you know, and we're supported by other people, you know, and I'm kind of poor, I'm, I'm not kind of poor. And I heard him. And I determined at that moment to be immediately obedient to what God had said. But what I'm used to usually in my life is, oh, interesting message, Pastor. I really hear that that's the will of God for my life. Let me ponder that for a while. And what I've experienced in my life is if I ponder it long enough, I'll forget it and not even think about it anymore. Or I think to myself, this is something I need to do, and I probably ought to start it like next month or next year. It's called postponing, pondering and postponing. Do any of you do this? Is this just me? This is like our way, ponder and postpone what God is saying to us. It's just fascinating to me. Jesus is teaching here nothing else first. Did you see the words from the man, first let me, first, first? I'll come and follow you, but first. Let's go on to the third man. I call this man a distracted volunteer. Verse 61. And we learn from what Jesus says to this man that followers of Jesus must not look back. You've heard that phrase before. I know you have not look back it's a little puzzling what does he mean by that still another said i will follow you lord you see the words again i will follow you lord but first this is not the kind of response a master wants to hear you see if he's lord of our life and he is right He is right, he's master. He's lord. So if he commands then we say but first. And once more this man sounds eager and but he says but first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Family obligations. That's Christian. Again, the scholars say there's more here than just saying goodbye to your family. There's this one more time is an expression that's that's ingrained in the culture there. The scholars say that this word really means that he seek he wants to seek his family's agreement before he comes and follows. He wants to satisfy his family responsibilities and. And if you've been around the world, you know that we have what in America called an independent culture where we make our own independent decisions. Like if you think this is something you should do, you just do it. Sometimes you don't even talk to mom and dad or anybody else. You know, you just decide and you you do it. I mean, the whole idea of consulting your family about what you should do or consulting the community or talking to your pastor about what you should do is like, you got to be kidding me. This is America. I do what I want. We're independent thinkers. You, you move to a place like Israel or other places among the Jewish people, and what you have is a collaborative culture where people, if they're going to make some kind of radical change in their life, they're going to go back and talk to their family and their community and their village, and they're going to seek the wisdom of their family. It's a very wise way to live. This man is saying, I want to follow you, but I've got to get everybody's okay on this one because this is radical. I can't just follow you because you command me. Right? i got other voices in my life. This man has a double allegiance. He's reluctant to give up and to make a full commitment. Whatever Jesus may say or do is simply at the word of Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says to him in verse 62. Jesus replied, this is interesting. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. When I was a teenager, I got the idea that the whole idea of becoming a Christian is you add Jesus to your life. Right? You just. In fact, I even saw some bumper stickers. Try Jesus. If you got one of those, take it off. That's not the gospel, this trying Jesus or adding Jesus thing. No one ever said to me, Look, if you're going to follow Jesus, He's first. In some ways, he's only. There's no such thing as adding Jesus to your life. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Any of you ever done any plowing? Let me see your hands. How many of you done some plowing? Okay, all right. So you get you get this one. What happens if you plow and you look back? Right. Uh, you know, when I was in high school, I worked for a farmer, and he said, hey, I want you to do some plowing. He like, I got in this big, huge tractor. It was really cool. You know, and he said, here's what you do. You know, you just, you put the blade in the last furrow, you know, that was, you know, and you, and you focus on the fence post way off in the distance, and you go. And you look, glance down here, and you go, and you don't look back. If you look back, you know, you're going to be doing this thing. And farmers do not like that. Have you noticed that when you look at the farmland, you know, the furrows are like, poo. It's like gorgeous, the way they plow their fields. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, look, don't look back. Don't look back at the life you left. Don't look back at the stuff that still is attractive. Don't look back at the old life. The most vivid illustration of this is Lot's wife. You remember that in Genesis 19? When the angels came and they rescued Lot and his wife and his children. And they said, run, run to the mountains and don't look back. And she did. You can read for yourself what happened then. It's the old life. It's the old way. Jesus said, if you're going to follow after me, you can't put your hand to the plow and be fit for the service of the kingdom. You can't be looking back all the time, wanting that stuff again. So much of that could be sinful way or it could just simply be your, your commitment to yourself. It's not worthy of your heart's affection anymore. Jesus has taken first and primary place in your life. If you're looking back while you're trying to serve Jesus, you're serving him with a divided heart. And Jesus wants to teach and train you not to do that. Because you'll, you'll be so much weaker. James 1.8 says, a double-minded person is unstable in all they do. Remember Revelation 3, 15 and 16? You're not hot and you're not cold i wish you were either hot or cold but you're not either one you are lukewarm graphic luke 16:13 jesus said no one can serve two masters i don't know about you but when i was a teenager i tried to do this for like 7 years of my life serve two masters it took me 7 years it took god Seven years of my life, I tried to serve Jesus and me. You want to meet the most miserable person in the world as someone who's trying to serve Jesus and themselves at the same time, and the words of Jesus are true. You cannot do it you may say, I thought I could, but you can 't do it for this one luke 14 thirteen Jesus said, "Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Give up everything you have." Okay, let's go on. That's way too weird. Give up everything you have? Come on. Does Jesus really say stuff like that? That's, surely that's for the Jews, not give up everything you have? You cannot be my disciple if you don't give up everything you have. Notice he didn't say everybody has to give away everything they have. You give it up. That is, you give up the ownership of it. You give up the looking back towards it. You give up the sense that this is more valuable than me following Christ. This is a, giving up everything you have is the same as not looking back. It's about following Jesus first and not giving, not looking back. Okay. So what about us? Good for those three guys. What about us? A few questions for you. Is Jesus these days of your life calling you to follow him? If you don't know the answer to that. I can answer it for you. The answer is yes. Oh, yes, he is. You may not hear it. If you don't hear it, then that's something for you to be working on in these days. Jesus, what do you want? You know, can I tell you that's a prayer he will always answer if you ask him, what do you, what are you calling me to do now? You called me to become a Christian. Now what are you calling me to do? How are you calling me to live? If you ask him that question in some kind of level of sincerity and commitment, he will answer that prayer every single time. He's calling you. The problem is is that we ponder and postpone. Or we whisper quietly to ourselves, I can't follow Jesus if it costs me everything. I have some obligations in life. Some things I need to do. Some people who are important to me. Some things that I need to do before I can fully commit. I fully intend at some point in my life to be fully devoted to Christ. He's just not yet. Because, well, look where I am now, Right? I can't only be a follower. I can't only be a Christian. I'm a husband and I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. I'm I'm a homeowner. I got lots of stuff. I got lots of stuff. I got lots of stuff. Have you learned, realized now that you got lots of stuff and that lots of stuff is entangling and you can't escape looking back at it all the time? Be very careful here. Jesus is saying to you, nothing else first. Don't look back. Count the cost. I hope you see this. The last thing I want to tell you is that Jesus himself did all of what he demands of us. He himself did it. That's why the first verse that we looked at said he's set his face to Jerusalem. He knew where he was going and what he was about to do. He did what He demands of you. Jesus never demands of you anything that He will not have done Himself. He is our example. He set His face. And when you look at the life of Jesus, you discover He never, ever tried to get luxury for Himself. Not even comfort for Himself. So many times He suppressed things that we would just call normal human desires And he just turned away from them in order to accomplish his Father's will. He knew the cost of what it is he was doing for us. He fully knew and he paid the price. He gave up earthly family expectations. When his family tried to intervene in his life and distract him from his heavenly Father's purpose, he turned away from his own mother. When his own disciples... Tried to turn him to the easy way of accomplishing his purpose. He rebuked them strong. Get behind me, Satan, he called Peter. These three things are demonstrated by Jesus again and again. Jesus counted the cost of a life given to God. He He knew the cost. And Jesus had nothing else first before his Father's will. And Jesus didn't look back. But he gave himself completely. What do you think those three guys did? Do you think they followed or not? We don't know. And maybe that's not so important right now for us. The question is, what about you? Is it possible to sit in this place and to listen to a message like this and be a little convicted about something? and walk out of here and do absolutely nothing. Think that's possible? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. My friends, if if you walk out of here today and but there's some little voice saying something to you about counting the cost or looking back or something that's in the way of being fully devoted to Christ, I want to ask you to look at your own heart and your own commitment. I want to ask you, are you pondering something right now and when you need to be obeying it right now? You postponing something where God's already spoken to you? Have you realized in your life that if you keep pondering and postponing, you'll be able to hear Him less and less? Have you learned that? the more clearly he speaks to us and the more that you harden your heart, it's like a coat of shellac over your heart and your ears and you just hear him less and less and after a while, it sounds like he's not saying anything at all to you. And sometimes what happens is is that God will speak to you in a new way and you'll realize you need to now obey what he told you 10 years ago. And how much longer am I going to ponder and postpone this? Jesus is saying, this is the way I'm going. And by the way, it's the way of suffering. And for me, it's death. If you want to follow after me, deny yourself and take up your own cross and follow me. Count the cost. Count the cost. And nothing else first. And don't look back. So now we've come to this place in time in our worship service where I'm very concerned about you. Because here's what happens. Oh, he's just about done. Thank God. You know. And oh, man. He preaches longer than Dave. You know? And I'm hungry. We got stuff to do. I mean, it's going to be warm today. We got right? And so your mind begin I mean, you start folding up your bible, right? And you know, the musicians come up here and you're thinking we're going to be out of here momentarily. And then the preacher says, "But we're going to take the Lord's Supper first." And then you try to go, "Oh, okay, let's get back and you know re-engage here, this is about Jesus and you know, can I say to you, once more, you're going to get up from your chair and you're going to walk forward and take a piece of the bread and a cup again." And I'd like to ask you to do this. It's a way of following him. It's his meal, right? It's his bread and his cup. It symbolizes his death. And His blood given to us are His life. It's really a symbol of a willingness to suffer for us. A pathway of giving everything for our good. And then Jesus says, now follow Me. Follow Me. Deny yourself. Live the kind of life that will glorify Me. Because that's what I did for you. One more time, you're going to come and take a piece of the bread and the cup. And, and it, it's a reminder of his suffering, isn't it? It's a reminder of his death and what he did for you and for me. So it ought to shake us a little bit. One of the problems of doing it every week, it can become like a tradition for you and you may, not even, you may be able to do it without even thinking about it. Can I just say to you, do it this time. Do it this time. When you get up, get up and say, I'm following Jesus. I'm following Jesus. And he did this for me. How can I not count the cost and not turn back? How can I have anything else first? How can I do anything other than to want to please him? Can you do that in this moment? And then go take it back to your seat, sit down and ponder this. He gave his life for you. And then when you're ready, take it, eat it, and drink it, and we'll worship. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask you, will you help us now in this moment, not just to think of this as the conclusion of our service, but this is a special time when we can each, by how we move, and what we think when we move, and what we think when we take this piece of bread and this cup, and and our thoughts about the Master, And our willingness to say, I'll follow you wherever you go. Let it be so of us in these minutes. May you be pleased by our desire to honor the one who died for us. In his name we pray. Amen. Tables are open. Please come.